Muggles, and welcome to EW's Binge of Harry Potter. I'm your host, Molly Smith. And I'm your other host, Mark Snedeker. We're co-hosts. We're co-hosts. And we're here to celebrate the wonderful wizarding world of Harry Potter. Um, Of course, Pottermania is as strong as ever. We have Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them coming out in November. Everyone's been obsessing with Cursed Child this summer. It's really, it's funny because we're almost 15 years since the first film came out and people are just still completely obsessed. It's the internet. I mean, the internet has truly taken over the wizarding world. And I mean, I'm a big part of it. I certainly, um, I like to tweet questions at JK Rowling all the time too, because she she loves to reveal things. So I want to know. I want to know what happened to, you know, Justin Finch Fletchley and all these sort of fun Has things. Rowling ever responded to one of your tweets? No, and the day she does, I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's going to like print the tweet and frame it and hang it proudly on his wall where um, everybody can see. I'm tattooing it. <laughs> you better believe I'm tattooing myself. So Mark, tell me a little bit about your love of Harry Potter. Oh man. Well, aside from my copious tweets <laughs> demanding answers in this age of J.K. Rowling Twitter revelations, um, I'm just a lifelong Harry Potter nerd. I always said, Home is where your Harry Potter hardcovers are. (laughs) And I think it's true. I've always just left those in my childhood bedroom. And of course, I bought another set to keep with me. You mean your childhood cupboard under the stairs? Oh, can you imagine? (laughs) I just don't think I would be able to handle that very long. But I'm just a lifelong fan. Um, And I remember being really involved in the Potter fandom when it first kind of came online with sites like MuggleNet and the Leaky Cauldron. I was a very active person there. And just really got to see the fandom grow and blossom. And especially in the last few years with Reddit and Tumblr, I think just explode. Oh, for sure. So I I think it's really interesting time to do a podcast because 15 years after the first film, there are so many things we know now. There are so many questions we still have. And every time I'm watching these films, I come up with a different question and something I never noticed or a, a plot hole that now seems so outrageous to me um, that I didn't pick up on. So, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing to watch it in retrospect, too, knowing the things that we know now. Right. You know, about where characters go and, and what their fate is and all of that. Totally. Like, you see Snape and you're like, girl, I know what happens to you. <laughs> Well, I too am a Potterhead, you know, went to all the midnight screenings and all of that. Always dressed as Bellatrix. You know, I'm a baddie. Wow. I'm a baddie. But not until, not until like the middle movies. No, not until the middle movies. So what were your early costumes? Well, I was kind of young when they came out. And also, I don't think midnight screenings were as huge of a thing when these these first movies oh, started yeah, they, out. Oh, yeah, they were. Were they? Oh, yeah. Then my parents were just like, nah, girl, you're seeing the matinee. Like, we're not taking right. you there. <laughs> like, of course, for our first episode, we're starting with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The cool thing about this this book and this film is that a lot of it is based kind of in a strange reality. When J.K. Rowling was establishing this world, Sorcerer's Stone is the only one that's actually rooted in some kind of history. Um, Nicholas Flamel, who we'll get into, is a real person. The Philosopher's Stone is a real legend. So all sorts of fun, crazy things that uh, went into this. And also every single name is based in some crazy Latin truth. Oh, yeah. And the name, she pulled a handful of them from, like, graveyards and stuff like that. Like, if you go to Scotland to the Elephant House where she first started writing this book, 
you can go to the graveyard right by there and see, I think, like, Tom Riddle's there and a handful of others. It's crazy. <sighs> oh, my God. Yeah, that was, like, a really magical experience for me that I think about pretty frequently still. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with that said, Mark, let's get into some of our favorite moments. Yeah, so let's dive into it. In this first episode, we are going to break down the 10 biggest moments in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And then we're so excited to have our very first special VIP guest interview, director Chris Columbus, is going to come on and tell us the most amazing stories you've never heard about this movie. And trust me, you're going to want to stick around because they're kind of insane. Very insane. So Molly, what is our first big moment, the first real important moment in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? Can I get a drum roll, please? <laughs> <laughs> the very first big moment is when Hagrid comes to Harry and tells him, You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? A wizard. So we chose this moment as kind of the first uh, moment to talk about because everything starts with your wizard, Harry. Now, I know you could argue, oh, my God, you guys skipped the Dursleys. You skipped Harry getting his letter. But I challenge you to tell me a more iconic line first then you're a wizard, Harry. And also, too, I mean, those letters were coming in, but that's the moment when Harry realizes his his sort of future, where his life is going to take him now. Yeah, he actually doesn't know anything during the letter period. It's kind of like a purgatory. He just knows that Dursley's being real suspect when he's, like, giving him that stank eye and burning all the letters in the fireplace. Right. Like, Harry never wises up to grab a letter off the floor. I always wondered why Harry doesn't just grab one of these stupid thousands of letters off the floor. Also, you've mentioned how Harry Potter has taken off on the internet. I mean, talk about something that just incited Tumblr. Yeah, they're like, you know how Harry's not a Ravenclaw? Because he picks one letter and runs with it. Like, if I was Harry, <laughs> stuff one in your pants and just say, oh, okay, Uncle Vernon, oh my God, you're so right. Like, I'm a bad kid. Let me go back to this cupboard right now and then open it. Anyways, thank God we have the moment when Hagrid kind of fills him in on everything. They're on this island in the hut, and in pops Hagrid, bursting down a door. Funny enough, in the book, actually, it's, Harry, you're a wizard. Mm -hmm. It's like a great Luke, I am your father, like, drama. Absolutely. Where everybody gets it wrong. And this is not the only Star Wars comparison to be made here, I mean. Right. So why is Hagrid saying, you're a wizard, Harry? Why do you think it encapsulates so much? I mean, I think that is a huge turning point for Harry. It's the kickoff to the series. It's what sets him on his journey. And it's also the beginning of a really beautiful and wonderful friendship between him and Hagrid. I mean, Hagrid is, mm. we've Do you just, think he's your, do you think he's Harry's like substitute father, substitute uncle, substitute brother? Oh, he's an uncle for sure. Yeah. Because he has sort of, you know, there's definitely something paternal about him. He cares about Harry and looks after him and always wants what's best for him, but he's got all that quirky stuff going on, like hoarding dragons and, you know, just kind of being goofy. Yeah, Hagrid is, like, the kind of person, you, he's not really all there. He doesn't really have any adult friends. You sort of, you trust him with Harry, I guess, but you wouldn't trust him for longer than, like, a quick vacation. Yeah. <laughs> now, in the movie, they cast Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid, which, 
a lot of people always wondered who you're going to cast as Hagrid. I mean, you you all, you wonder who you're going to cast as anybody, right? But especially Hagrid because he's this tall, big, imposing Half giant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, there's some special effects to be done there. Right. But there's no casting call that's like searching, like like 15 foot man. Right. White male, <laughs> 25 to 30, or however. No, Hagrid's like 65 by the W when Sorcerer's Stone happens. Little known fact that he does not look 65. He looks no. you know, 38. He's, yeah, I don't even know. But, you know, casting Robbie Coltrane was huge for J.K. Rowling. She said in a previous interview, quote, David Heyman said to me, if there's one actor that you really want for one of the parts, and I said Robbie for Hagrid, and I just kept saying it, I just kept saying it, and they talked about other people, and that was a bit of a deal breaker for me. So isn't it kind of crazy to think that it I mean, all hinges on Hagrid. I, I love Robbie Coltrane. I love Hagrid. But it's crazy to think that that would have been the breaking point for her. I mean, think about Richard Harris as Dumbledore and Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall, you know? Right. So, I mean, yeah, Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid uh, kind of really just solidified. Like, okay, solid. We got Hagrid. Obviously, we got the kids, and they're amazing, and we'll talk about them more later. Um, big moment number two, Harry gets his wand. This is huge because, I, in my head, this is the most iconic scene in the whole movie. Um, when the wind blows and he gets his wand at Ollivander's and the light shines down on him. Well, this is definitely the scene that goes in all the movie magic montages. But, yeah, Harry gets his wand, and it's kind of just sort of piggybacking on your wizard Harry with, like, no, like, you actually are a wizard Harry. Like, here's, here's yeah, some... This ain't no joke. Yeah, here's some magic. magic. Yeah, here's your <laughs> wand. Here is your very important tool. Um, it's piggybacking off of that, but this is a moment when he's actually practicing magic, when he sees the... Well, sort the, of. He's, like, opening drawers Right, and but I'm saying, like, he's seen, you know, beforehand, he made glass disappear and, like, messed with his cousin, right? But, yes. like, here he sees what... It's the potential of what he's able to do. Right. This is the first time he actually has, like, a thing in his hand. He's like, oh, my God, I have this stick. I just paid 10 galleons for this. Um, and, and Diagon Alley. Don't even get me started on Diagon Alley. But I just think the worst thing that ever happened in Diagon Alley, aside from like it getting blown up in like book six, yeah. is <laughs> actually the worst thing that happens is Hagrid surprising Harry with Hedwig. Like, here, here's this thing. I know you're getting a wand, but I got you an owl. Here's you this have to living take care thing that yeah. you have to look after for the next however long owls live. I have no idea right. what the life is. Right, that's like Molly, like, I got you a baby. Here's a baby. <laughs> Sorry, hope you didn't want a cat. I'm just thinking about all the times I brought, like, goldfish home to my parents after fairs and what they must have been thinking, you know? Right, and that's, like, a hundred times worse for, for Hedwig. <laughs> but luckily, Harry gets Hedwig and is now able to communicate with the outside world. But one more um, quick thing about uh, this moment in particular. Obviously... You know, earlier in the film, we know that Harry is linked to Voldemort. He doesn't quite realize what it means yet, but he has the lightning bolt scar, the famous lightning bolt scar. But to me, when he's in Ollivander's and he's getting his wand, that's the moment when you really realize how linked he is to Voldemort. And of course, that's something you see in retrospect, right? But Ollivander says that there are only two wands that came from, what was it? It was some type of feather. Um, and of course, the a other- Phoenix feather. A phoenix feather. And Voldemort, Voldemort has that other wand. So you know that there's something going on there and, and it's just sort of planting the seed. Right, it's the first inkling of, oh, by the way, the guy that killed your parents, um, yeah, he he kind of, uh, like, this is his his co-wand. His soul is, like, linked with yours, but we'll get into it. Yeah, but no big deal, we'll get into it soon. <laughs> so, moment number three, I, I think we're going to group it in as meeting Ron, Hermione, and Draco. Obviously, this is, like, a, sort of a span, like, this is a whole journey, but... 
Harry's next entrance into the wizarding world comes with meeting these three people. First is Ron, who he meets at Platform 9 and 3 quarters, although they never really talk. Um, Mrs. Weasley does not recognize Harry for Harry Potter, whereas every other wizard does at the Leaky Cauldron. I think it's not that she doesn't recognize him. It's that she's not trying, that she's trying not to put him on the spot and, you know, well, good for put her. him on That's this celebrity nice. pedestal. But then again, like, Mrs. Weasley can be a little spacey, so who knows? But I'd like to believe she, like, her maternal instincts were kicking in. Right. So Harry gets help through the platform by Ron's family and then just ostensibly gets on the train without talking to them and then ends up in the same carriage as Ron. Yeah. And they're just quick friends. Like It's immediate. Yeah, he Ron asks to see the scar. Harry's super chill about it. He's like, oh, yeah. And he smiles and lifts up his bangs. Mm-hmm. And Ron says wicked. And then they just, like, bond over... Ron's awful sandwiches and uh, because Harry, Harry then goes on to buy the lot and they eat all the birdie bots and the chocolate frogs and yeah. all of that. I mean, nothing nothing bonds bros more than candy. Am I right? That that got me through my fraternity yeah. days. <laughs> so he meets Ron and that just all seems fine and good. They're pretty quick friends. And then Hermione comes in and I know you love Ron and Hermione's first meeting. Oh oh yeah. I mean, talk about a meet cute. Holy cricket! You're Harry Potter. I'm Hermione Granger. And you are? Um, Ron Weasley. Pleasure. Who knew? Who could have known? J.K. Rowling knew. Do you think she knew from that first moment? I think she did. She did for sure. I don't think J.K. Rowling had everything planned out. I think but maybe she, she, she laid some groundwork for stuff that did make it into the films later that she was able to sort of tie in. But there are certain things she knew, and I think she knew about Ron and Hermione. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I think so. Um... Yeah, so Harry doesn't quickly become friends with Ron and Hermione, just Ron. Like, they keep Hermione at arm's length. Um, And then they get into the tower, and the third most important person Harry meets now is Draco Malfoy. Oh, I love this moment. There's a great scene in the... I mean, in the book, he meets Malfoy at Madame Malkin's robes, and um, it's not the most pleasant encounter. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, it's this awesome scene right outside of the Great Hall. McGonagall is kind of leading them all in. And Malfoy goes up to Harry and kind of trashes Ron. And Absolutely is like, trashes Ron. And is like, I'll help you uh, pick out the right people. And um, and Ron gives maybe the saddest look I've ever seen. It's super sad. Draco comes up to Harry on the staircase and says, you'll soon find out some wizarding families are much better than others, Potter. You don't want to go making friends with the wrong sort. And he extends his hand and says, I can help you there. And the reason I know I'm a Slytherin is because I would have taken Draco's hand and been like, thank you. Oh, my God. This kid brought a sandwich. He has a rat. Thank you. But Harry, he is a Gryffindor because Harry says, I think I can tell the wrong sword for myself. Says no to Draco Malfoy. Mm -hmm. And that is the beginning of, honestly, kind of like the whole series. Because the antagonism behind Malfoy and Harry fuels so many things. Um, over the course of the books. Constantly at war with each other. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our next big moment, which is, of course, right after this interaction, the sorting hat scene. The sorting hat. And this is where all the students get sorted into their houses. Yeah. So the sorting hat. I want to take a quick second to address the four houses of Hogwarts because I think over the years they've gotten bastardized a little bit. They've gotten overgeneralized. Yeah. And in the first book, in the first movie, is when... 
J.K. Rowling really just establishes the houses for a while. So you gotta sort of latch onto these adjectives and not forget them and not overgeneralize them. I'm going to read the song to you, okay? I'm gonna read you the song of the four houses. You might belong in Gryffindor, where dwell the brave at heart, their daring, nerve, and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. Okay, so like brave, yes, that's the thing everybody talks of about. Daring, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, nerve and chivalry. Chivalry, I feel like, is not something you think of often with like Gryffindors. It's definitely not what first comes to mind for me. Right. Well, because chivalry is such a you think of it, I think of it as holding a door open for a lady. Right, and, pulling out a seat at dinner. Yeah, or being like a medieval knight. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure how chivalry applies here, especially to um, someone like a Neville or something. But I think what's interesting about the houses is that, you know, I don't think necessarily every little thing applies to people. It's right. just sort of, you know, like if you're 80% Gryffindor, you're a Gryffindor. Maybe. I mean, I don't know how the percentages fall. You know, is there a quantifiable measure here? I don't Who knows? know. The next one I want to talk about is Hufflepuff because God knows Hufflepuff has been thrown under the Hogwarts <laughs> Express over the years. So the actual quote on Hufflepuff is, they are just and loyal. Those patient Hufflepuffs are true and unafraid of toil. So just, loyal, patient, unafraid of toil. So hardworking. Yeah. Hufflepuff has been bastardized oh, yeah. over the years. It's like an insult to be called a Hufflepuff now, which I don't think is... By any means, what Rowling intended. Yeah, that's like, I mean, it's just loyal, patient, hardworking. Those all sound like good qualities. Those are great. So we think of Hufflepuffs now as like friendly and dumb and like the stoners. Like those are not things. Those are things we just invented. Thanks a lot, Ernie McMillan. (laughs) But Hufflepuff just doesn't deserve the the bad rap it got after the Sorting Cat song. It kind of all went downhill. But I would just like to remind people that Hufflepuffs are just and loyal and hardworking. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe they're stoners, but who knows? And then Ravenclaw, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Ravenclaw is wise, old, wit, learning. Um, I think there's a coldness with Ravenclaw that is forgotten, but it's a different coldness than Slytherin. Because Slytherin's quote is, perhaps in Slytherin you'll make your real friends. Those cunning folks use any means to achieve their ends. So Slytherins are not evil. They're they're not evil. They are cunning. They're very smart. And overall, they're ambitious. And they believe more in the end, not so much the means. They don't mind doing crazy things. So I like to think that Slytherin applies to, yes, all the Death Eaters. But I think, think of all the rich kids of Beverly Hills. Like, they're all Slytherins. They're not bad people. Some of them are, but they're not awful people. There were plenty of Slytherins who were not Death Eaters and who were like, I I am sorry, I am not involved with this. I am just a Slytherin. Leave me out of this. I'm just a little sassy sometimes. Like, sorry, but I'm not a Death Eater. And also, like, you and I, I think, are especially defensive of Slytherin because we, of course, are both Slytherins. Well, yeah, I identify as Slytherin for for those exact reasons. I'm not evil, but I have undertones of, of evil. But what, what about you? What? Why are you Slytherin? I think it's mostly the ambition that I connect with, Yeah, girl. you know? Um, I'm you just go, trying to go get that. move my way up to the top, you know? So I am Climb Slytherin that and I am ladder. proud. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Slither up that corporate ladder. <laughs> so our next big moment is a quote that I think can only be performed. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. And those pauses, <laughs> those pauses are canon. Those pauses are included oh, yeah. in the text. That's true. This moment is when Harry goes to his potions class, and he's Potion. he's very, you know, 
carefully taking down everything that Snape, Professor Snape is saying. And Snape takes it as Harry sort of disregarding, you know, class and not paying attention and all of that. And, and he lays into him. He doesn't like how fame has got into Harry's head. Although that, of course, isn't true, but that's how he's reading the situation. Yeah, this is... And I think an iconic, another iconic quote from the film, um, everybody was dying to see how Snape would happen in the movie. And of course, Alan Rickman is incredible. But this moment is a big moment because it's the beginning of this ridiculous decision that Snape hates him. Not a ridiculous decision, but like just a, a steadfast belief of, oh yeah, this guy has it out for me. And he is an antagonist from here on out. Oh, yeah. He never, ever takes a chance to, like, get to know Harry. He just decides he doesn't like him from the beginning. And again, that's a retrospect kind of thing where watching the films now, it's so interesting to read all of these situations knowing what we know about Snape. But at the time, is like, what does this guy have for this kid? What is his deal? <laughs> um, now, first years take seven classes. They take Transfiguration, Charms, Potions, History of Magic, Defense Against the Dark Arts, Astronomy, and Herbology. And then flying is, I think, compulsory. But um, let's talk flying, Molly. Let's because talk. Let's talk a, the next moment. This up. is a huge, huge moment. This is Harry's first time on a broom, and yeah, and a latent skill he did not know he had. Yeah, you know, you said how is Harry doing in school? Harry's not the best student, but where he does really soar, oh my I God. went there. I did it. Where he soars is in, in the flying lessons. Everybody's, you know, standing above their broom, trying to get it to come to them. And if Ron, of course, gets smacked in the face, Hermione, who is good at everything, is really struggling too. It's just kind of wobbling beneath her, not really going into the air. And it comes up immediately for Harry. Yeah, this is the first talent Harry realizes he actually has in magic. Yeah, and it also, it comes up for Draco too. And they, again, have sort of another moment where they're, battling each other. Well, Flying Lesson is important because Flying Lesson leads to Harry being on the Quidditch team um, with the whole never remember all nonsense. Um, and Quidditch is its own, you know, outrageous event in Harry Potter. In Sorcerer's Stone, what happens in Quidditch? Well, he learns it. You know, he, he meets the very hot Sean Biggerstaff as Oliver Wood. He is exposed to the world of Quidditch. He kind of gets a little friendship with Fred and George who people always sort of forget that Fred and George are actually good friends of Harry's independently yeah. of Ron. Mm -hmm. Like they were teammates on a, on a you know, a, yeah, a team Yeah, they're hanging together. out at practice. So Quidditch is a huge moment for Harry and the idea that flying is something that A, comes naturally to him, B, leads into this great extracurricular for him and this whole world for him. But C, most importantly, is that he realizes that his father was also a Quidditch player. And so when Harry becomes Seeker, it's the first connection to his dad beyond, oh, you look just like him. Yeah. So it's yeah. another tangible sort of step along the way of finding out who he is and figuring out what makes Harry a potter. Also on the subject of how Harry's doing in school, you mentioned his charms class. And our next big moment is Wingardium Leviosa. Wingardium Leviosa. Stop, stop, stop. You're going to take someone's eye out. Besides, you're saying it wrong. It's Leviosa, not Leviosa. You do it then if you're so clever. Go on, go on. Wingardium Leviosa. It is, it is iconic in its use as a spell. It is iconic in its pronunciation by Hermione. And it's the only spell they actually really use in Sorcerer's Stone. It's the first one they learn. So Hermione proves that she's amazing and a know-it-all 
Um, and that prompts Ron to make fun of her. Yeah, he thinks that she can't hear him. So she runs away. She runs to the girl's bathroom, and she's there crying, all because of Wingardium freaking Leviosa. Um, and that leads us into our next moment, which is Troll in the Dungeon. Yeah, so here, this is where Professor Coral, he runs into the Great Hall as they're having the great Halloween feast, which, quick tangent, by the way, I always get so hungry watching these movies. Oh, every feast. I mean, I just die. Like, how much feast. weight have I put on just, like, snacking while watching Harry Potter? <laughs> I mean, really. Totally. Anyways, so Coral runs in, announces there's a troll in the dungeon, and Harry and Ron freak out because they know that Hermione's been in the bathroom crying over what Ron said about her. So they take it upon themselves to go and rescue her. So they go down there and they face the troll. And they're not doing a good job of it. They're really struggling. Well, they, they do it. They get it. it. At first, I mean. Oh, yeah. They go down there. They face the troll. And they kill it. Not kill it, like, physically. But they, like, <laughs> they, they knock that out. And the way how... Wingardium Leviosa. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that's so important to me about this moment is, A, you sort of see Ron at this point come into his magical abilities, right? Taking what Hermione taught him and everything. But this is what solidifies the trio. It's what bonds them as friends. And from there on out, they're really inseparable. It literally says in the book, some things just bond you. And knocking out a 13-foot-tall mountain troll is one of them. Absolutely. Which, you know what? I feel like my friendships now are less than because I never did <laughs> <Right>? that. So... <laughs> so now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of it because Troll in the Dungeon really... Um, I like how that's just, like, what it's called. Troll in the Dungeon is really um, Quirrell. Uh, it's sort of his play to distract everybody to go steal the Sorcerer's Stone. So moment number nine is the Mirror of Erised. And the only reason this moment is super important in the scheme of things, because it really isn't, but... It's important because it's a, the first time Harry is out of bed alone. It's the first time he sees his parents in this mirror. You know, that's super sad. But it's also just the first moment of Harry Dumbledore one-on-one, -on -one, um, some vague philosophy action. And Dumbledore has to warn him. Dumbledore has to say, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live, Harry. So I think it's pretty important that very early on, Dumbledore... Harry could have gone his entire life, his entire Hogwarts career, trying to bring back his parents or obsessing over them. And this moment, I think, makes sure that he doesn't. This moment makes it clear that Harry has other things he has to achieve and do. Um, and as Dumbledore knows, raise him to be killed. Um, <laughs> but that he can't just dwell on the idea of the parents. And so he moves the mirror. And as we'll learn, he will move it to a very special place that plays into our very last moment. And our very last moment, obviously this is the grand finale, and we've kind of glossed over the entirety of who Nicholas Flamel is in the Sorcerer's Stone, but let's uh, let's do a quick rundown of, of the climax of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So the story leading up to this is that all throughout the year, Harry, Ron, and Hermione have slowly gotten some clues about something called the Sorcerer's Stone. A lot of this is from Hagrid slipping up but there are some bits and pieces that Harry was around for, such as Hagrid picking up the stone from Gringotts, there being a Gringotts vault break-in, somebody trying to sabotage Harry, which doesn't really have anything to do with the stone, but it's kind of just a moment where Harry and Ron and Hermione basically don't know if Quirrell is behind it or Snape is behind it, mm -hmm. but they know something is being guarded by a three-headed dog. Named Fluffy. And they know that 
whatever it is is powerful. Eventually, they find out that it's the Sorcerer's Stone, which was a real stone, according to legend, that turned metal to gold and produced a liquid of immortality. And thanks to some nifty research from Hermione Granger, she learned about Nicholas Flamel, who was a real person that J.K. Rowling learned about in her early 20s. Um, he was a 14th century French businessman and philanthropist, and his life's work was to produce this Philosopher's Stone. Um, he was real. Philosopher's Stone, probably not so much. But other fun facts, he designed his own tombstone. Oh. <laughs> and his house is the oldest stone house in Paris right now. Anyways, <laughs> all of these important facts are to tell you that the best thing about the Harry Potter series and about Sorcerer's Stone is that research can be cool. And all we know is that they just keep researching and they find out what the stone is, what it's doing in Hogwarts, and that somebody's after it. Mm -hmm. So in our last big moment, through the trap door, Harry, Ron, and Hermione decide that Snape is going after that stone tonight and they have to beat him to it. And what they do is go through a series of challenges where it's everything they learned and it's amazing. It's really, it's putting them to the test, you know? And the thing that I love about the Harry Potter books and movies is that it really intertwines everything. So in this final climax, you see the trio being put to the test about everything that they've learned so far. So there's a challenge after they get past Fluffy and go through the trapdoor, they're entwined in Devil's Snare. And Hermione remembers from Herbology that you just have to be cool, rest, and you can go through. Of course, Ron doesn't deal with that so well. He's screaming and just can't handle it. And she remembers that they hate light. So Lumos, there we go. Boom. He's out of the Devil's Lumos Snare. Lumos Salem, actually. Lumos Salem. Yes. Um, yeah, they make it through the Devil's Snare. Then they hit... Um, you know, a like a room of flying keys that Harry Harry conquers because he's a beast on a broom. <laughs> um, I think that the, was his official nickname on the Quidditch beast team. On the broom. Yes. Then there's a chess game, and then obviously cut from the movie, you've got this cool potion scene um, that's Snape's challenge, and you've also got a mountain troll. That's the defense against the dark arts kind of guard, which nobody really talks about the idea that. It was such a big deal. There was a troll earlier, and now there's just a second troll. Or maybe it's the same <laughs> troll that they were like, you know what, let's train him, how to yeah. train your dragon. Exactly. Um, but anyway, the person who they were trying to stop getting the Sorcerer's Stone, they all thought it was Snape. But guess what, boy? It's Professor Quirrell. Mm -hmm. Sneaky, dumb Professor Quirrell, who went off in the woods to search for Lord Voldemort one year during his sabbatical from Hogwarts, came back with the guy in his head, and now, now he's ready to kill Harry. He's ready to kill Harry because he wants that stone. So Harry makes it through all these challenges. He leaves Hermione behind at one point. He leaves Ron behind at one point. And he gets into this final chamber. And lo and behold, there is the Sorcerer's Stone. There is the Mirror of Erised. And there is Professor Quirrell. Not Snape, who we thought it would be. It's Not Professor Snape. Quirrell. Not Snape. Also, the stone actually isn't there. Quirrell's just sort of waiting for him and being like, I knew you'd come. Give me the stone. And... Harry magically finds it in his pocket, which is super cool, super convenient. Thank you, Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. um, and then Harry comes face to face with somebody who he's only heard legend about. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I guess it's face to face to face. Yeah, technically. <laughs> Talk it about is, like a meta Harry Potter meta moment. Meta Potter. It is uh, Voldemort on the back of Quirrell, and I don't know what series of events led to Voldemort being like 
an entity without a body. Like, I know the curse backfired, Avada Kedavra, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know what he was. He was a baby in book four, so, like, God knows what All he is in book one. All the different iterations of Voldemort are so creepy. Yeah, so in this, he's just, like, this floating being, and he's inhabited the back of Quirrell's head, and luckily, Harry kind of quickly confronts his fear. He does, God knows he's a Gryffindor, he just immediately fights mm-hmm. and learns that he touches Quirrell and he turns to... And he just burns. Yeah, we never really get an explanation. Um, it's never something that kind of comes up again, but um, yeah, that happens. And uh, lo and behold, Harry saves the day. He passes out before Quirrell dies. That's yeah, why because, he can't like, see his, like, but ghostly spirit comes through Harry. It's very, it's all very... Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, I, I kind of forgot that happened. Yeah. But all right, okay, cool, 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 saves the day. And then we wake up, and uh, it's our corny climax. I love a corny climax in a Harry Potter movie, and this is, I mean, I think actually this is the best one. because is, This is your favorite corny climax. Well, because we get Richard Harris as Dumbledore, who was so good and so kind good. and tender and did not yell at Harry like Michael Gambon did at every movie. Yeah. <laughs> And he does this funny little thing about an earwax jelly bean, and he explains all the, you know, this epilogue stuff about, oh, yeah, I, the mirror's going away. By the way, Nicholas Flamel's going to die. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. R.I.P. Like, he's cool with it. 600 years was fine. He's getting his affairs in order. And, oh, yeah, Voldemort's kind of out there, but, like, we'll talk about it more soon. And, and that's it. That's what we will Stone. talk about it later. Yeah. So... That's kind of all that happens in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It's obviously so different from all the other movies that we're going to talk about because there is so much going on here that is just all exposition and all Harry's first exposure, a lot of beginning of relationships, a lot of groundwork for themes. But it's great, and it's simple, and it's accessible for young readers, and it is the lightest in a series of progressively darker films. Yeah. And that is what our chat with director Chris Columbus is all about. Right, so director Chris Columbus called in to tell us all about bringing this wonderful wizarding world to life for the very first time. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Chris, it's Molly Smith. How's it going? Excellent. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for taking the time. We want to start out by asking, what was your sense of the size of Harry Potter when you first inherited it? And then what did you think when the film finally came out? What did you think about the series? Well, I um, I mean, for me, it was something that my daughter was pushing me to read, um, uh, and, and I didn't read it at first. Uh, she got an early copy of it, and I just wasn't interested for whatever reason, and then she kept pushing me and pushing me, and uh, by the time I did read it, it was starting to become a bit of a phenomenon, I guess, and um, I fell in love with it. I actually saw the movie when I read uh, Sorcerer's Stone, so I knew it was something that I needed to do. I wanted to... to I wanted to make the movie. I just saw it all in my head, and I called my agent at the time, and I said, "Look, uh, is this is, is this a project you could put me up for?" She said, "Yeah, you and twenty five other directors are, are interested in doing this." Warner Brothers was just—they were interviewing countless directors. So I, I asked my agent at the time. I said, "Look, can you get me the last meeting?" She said, what do you mean? I said, I want to be the last person in the room after all these other directors have met, you know, whether that's two weeks, three weeks down the line. So she set up this meeting two weeks down the line, and 
I uh, took that time. I got a copy of Steve Clovis' script, which was fantastic, but I wanted to do a version of the script that sort of uh, was uh, illustrated visually how I saw the film. So I spent 10 days rewriting the script, uh, just with camera cues and lighting design ideas, all that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So when I walked into the Warner Brothers meeting, I basically put a script down on the table and I said, I've, re I've already rewritten the script for you for free, which doesn't ever happen now. <laughs> and then I went into, uh, I went into how I w my vision for the movie. Uh, and at that point, I think I had read, I think the first three books were available, if I'm not mistaken. And I knew that they were getting progressively darker. So I said, if I, you know, and at the, I was naive enough at the time to think I was going to do all seven movies. Mm. Um, I said, I think these need to get progressively darker. So the first film is like this beautiful storybook, uh, warm, colorful experience. Uh, and then the second film, we start to desaturate it a little more and it starts to get a little darker. And by the time we hit Prisoner of Azkaban, it's, it's much darker. And, and they seemed to buy into that idea. They liked it. They still kept me on a, on a, you know, I had to wait about five weeks after that to find out that I got the job. Mm. Uh, um, but then when I got the job, they said, you've, you've got it, but you've got to fly to Scotland to meet Joe Rowling. I said, oh, really? They said, yeah, this is the, kind of the final interview. So I was terrified. At the time, I was, you know, uh, I wasn't that, uh, the, the Internet isn't what it is today. So I, didn't, I hadn't seen a lot of interviews with Joe. I had seen maybe a photograph, but I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So we went to this hotel. Uh, I met her and David Heyman at a, uh, some, uh, some hotel in Scotland. And we basically sat down for about three hours, three and a half, four hours maybe. And I just went into my vision for the film. And she said, that's exactly the way I see it. Um, and that's the moment I got, the, I got the gig. What was the hardest thing you did have to cut? I mean, in those early conversations, knowing that you had to sort of slice some really good, uh, kill your darlings, if you will, what was the most painful? Uh, there were a couple. My favorite character from the first book was Pease, the poltergeist. Uh. And I really, uh, I really thought we were actually, and we actually shot. We shot a Pease sequence. And we needed to cut something because the film was, was close to three hours. And we, we decided to cut the Peeves sequence because we hadn't gone to the point of animating Peeves yet. He was going to be a completely CGI character. And that saved us a considerable amount of money, but also created a considerable amount of heartbreak. Yeah. Maybe because they had to cut it. Um, and I think the uh, other thing that wasn't shot, but I really wanted to put it, it was one of the challenges at the end of the book where Hermione... And Harry, if I remember correctly, they're drinking, they, they have to test these potions, one of which could kill you. Right. And I thought that was a really intense uh, uh, it, it, scene, filled with a lot of tension. And um, it was in the script. Steve Clovis put it back in the script, but we ended up cutting it from, uh, from the shooting script. Yeah. No, those are, the, I mean, I know fans have always talked about that famous Peeves, uh, you know, being shot and then getting cut. What... I always wanted to know, what was the actual, like, sequence? What did he look like? I just never had any idea in my head of what Peeves actually looks like. Uh, there's a drawing of it somewhere in the, on the Warner Brothers lot, I'm sure. There's, a, there's several drawings of Peeves. I think we gave him an oversized head and some odd, not really le like a leprechaun outfit, but he had an oversized head and he was floating and um, it, it kind of a maniacal oversized 
grin, <laughs> oversized mouth as well, <laughs> and wild eyes and crazed hair. It would be fun to sort of dig it up and, and find it. There's the, the footage also exists, so there's, there's the potential that someday we could put it back together if people really were that interested. Totally. I think people would be. Yeah, although now I'm kind of scared yeah. to scared to actually see that thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it was a little frightening. You know, Chris, moving on to the kids, they were all relatively unknown when they came on, and, and I'm sure that was exciting, but it had to make you a li- at least a little bit nervous. I'm wondering with the main three, with Harry, Ron, and Hermione, you know, was there a moment where you thought, wow, Dan, Rupert, Emma, they really got it. They are Ron. They are Hermione. They are Harry. Yeah, there's no question when we saw each of them. You know, Dan particularly was the kid that I was obsessed with at the beginning of our casting sessions. At the beginning of our casting sessions, I was seeing thousands of videotapes from kids all over all over the U.K., uh, 25 to 35 kids a day were coming into David Heyman's office, and we were auditioning all of them. And then I watched a uh, uh, David Copperfield, which was a BBC show. And in the show, young David, I think, was played by Dan Ratcliffe. And I said, that's him. That's Harry Potter. I just, I, it just, he looked like Harry Potter. He had that haunted sort of quality. And the casting director said, well, you never get him because his parents don't want him to act. They don't want him to be in film. I said, but you got it. We got to figure out a way to get him. I, and, and so any, any kid I saw after that, I, I couldn't stop thinking about Dan. Every kid who came into the room, it just felt like Dan was the was the right choice. Um, so we, David Heyman and Steve Clovis, I think, went to the theater and were sitting a few rows behind Dan and his father. And David approached them at the theater and said, Chris is really interested in meeting you guys. And because of that, I was able to meet with Dan and his parents, I, I think, got on board. They saw that we were going to be protective of, of Dan and, quite frankly, protective of all of the kids because I had learned from casting kids in the past that it's important to cast the parents as well. So Dan's parents were just some of the the, the best people I've ever met, along with Rupert's parents and Emma's parents. So I was I was more interested in casting the kids who felt like they were perfect for the film as opposed to casting the kids who had the most experience as actors. So mm-hmm. as a result of that, the first couple of weeks were a little stressful, to say the least, because the kids were so excited about being on, on, on a movie set, being Harry Potter and Hermione and Ron, that they could do maybe one, you know, spit out maybe one line, and then they would look to the camera and smile or look up at the lights <laughs> and smile and... So the, getting them to focus was a bit difficult, and I shot that first film. As a result of that, I shot the first film. You'll see there are a lot of cuts in the film. With like, I shot it like a documentary, like three cameras at a time, because I never knew what was going to happen. I always needed to cut to something else if one of the kids lost their focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like an exercise in acting for me. You know, I, t- I basically had to teach these kids how to become actors as well. By the time we got to the second film, halfway through Chamber of Secrets, we were able to, you'll see a couple of scenes in that film, we actually pulled out the steady cam and they were able to walk and talk and have a conversation for a while. Huh. Um, and then by the time we got to Azkaban, these kids were professional actors. They were They were really, at that point, really... Terrific. Totally. So, but it, again, each film was 160. The first film was 160 days. 
we took a maybe a week off and then we started shooting the second film and you know it was another 160 days so that is that is an intense acting program that you're in right and yeah you know what there's a famous scene in sorcerer's stone where i think it's emma who starts mouthing um dan's lines or uh one of their lines do you, do you know about that scene does that ring a bell uh, I, I would have to look back on that. It's in the movie? Yeah, it's in the movie. It's, like, famously, I think they're running to Hagrid's hut, like, right before they go through the trap door, and Emma straight up is mouthing lines that Dan says. Okay, that's great. I, there's a, you know, one of the, the thing we shot on the first day of Sorcerer's Stone was the final train sequence where Harry looks at Hogwarts and um, uh, Emma, Dan, and Rupert are, are sort of huddled up side of the train. If you look closely at that scene, Emma is, because Hermione, there's a big thing in the book about her teeth. She has sort of had uh, an overbite. Mm-hmm. And so we put, she's wearing fake teeth in that scene. And I realized that that's, that we're never going to be able to, she's never going to be able to perform with these huge fake teeth in her mouth for the rest of the movie. So if you look closely, you can see some fake teeth. Huh. Oh my God. Wait, you're just, you're blowing my mind right now. I got to look this up. <laughs> Well, but let me ask you, does the whimsy and the fantasy of the story, you know, like getting to, you know, getting to wave a wand around and sort of dress up in these in these fun, crazy costumes, did that seep in at all? I think it did because we took the world very seriously. Remember, this could have gone, you know, looking at it now with some, you know, years down the line, this could have gone horribly wrong, the first Harry Potter movie. And I knew at the time... That if I if if I didn't do my job well and I you know this wasn't exactly perfect in a weird way that there would be there wouldn't be a second movie or a third movie so we had to look at the design of the great hall the design of the wardrobe as as reality you know not as because if you look at all of those costumes they're so well made and so well thought out that the the whimsical side of it is far less. That's important than the the ability to create a world that feels timeless. So that's that's what I was going for throughout the design. Remember, we had nothing when we went into that first movie. There was no nobody knew what Hogwarts was going to look like. Nobody knew what these costumes were going to look like. And it was so important to create that world so it had a sense of not only, as I said, reality but magic. Um, and I think that everyone knew that they were involved in something far less whimsical and something very, very important, you know? Yeah. And knowing what we know now about sort of where the series went, is there anything that you would have gone and changed in that first film? Any scene you always wanted to go back to and redo? Uh, you know, I think as a, as a director, you always feel that you could have done certain things better. I'm always second guessing anything I've done in film. So, um, but I'm, I'm proud of the way we sort of combined the practical elements of uh, uh, with the CGI elements in the first film. What's great about looking back at the first film is those moving staircases were actually moving. <laughs> you know, we didn't need to. Those were kids on actual moving staircases, and only the only CGI that helped us is when we panned up and we saw hundreds of them. Um, so it was a nice combination of that. I think, honestly, my biggest regret, which we learned on the second film, so if you look at the second film, you realize the visual effects are much better in the second film. And that's because when we started the first film, we didn't shoot the visual effects sequences first. We sort of saved some of the bigger sequences, like Quidditch, toward the end of the movie, which gave us less time to work on those visual effects. So I, 
I have some regrets about some of the visual effects in the movie. I think they could have been a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I would go back and, and, and get, per, you know, try to get those a little bit better. Um, but also it's the time, you know, it was the year 2000, so, um, in 2001, so the visual effects weren't where they are today uh, either. So that's probably my biggest regret. Um, totally. But I, you know, the, the film pops up on television and I still... I'm kind of mesmerized by it. It's like a scrapbook for me. I mean, it's just I remember every day on the set. It's it's probably Chamber of Secrets and Sorcerer's Stone. I can remember almost every day of shooting. Yeah. What was the single hardest day? Do you remember? Um, I think it was probably the... We had designed, again, because of my obsession with trying to have a hands-on approach in terms of practicality, tangible things in the room so that the magic felt like, so that the kids weren't looking at all CGI or all green screen. So we designed the Great Hall with hundreds of candles that were on monofilament strings, and all of them were lit with flames. Um, And they were hanging in the Great Hall, which no one seemed to realize at the time, is that those flames were melting the monofilament and causing the candles to drop. So suddenly, (laughs) right before we're supposed to we were supposed to, to shoot all of the kids coming into the Great Hall. Campbells are dropping left and right. Um, basically, we had to shut down for a few hours, take down all the candles, and replace them all with CGI candles. Oh, my God. So that was a pretty devastating, that was a, that was a, a shaky day, to say the least. <laughs> um, one of the other things I'd lo- I would love to do was I always thought Hagrid should be a little bigger. Um, hmm. And we didn't have the, we, believe it or not, we didn't have the resources or the money to actually create a CGI version of Hagrid for the first couple of films. So we had a, a rugby player in a gigantic Hagrid suit <laughs> who worked in the who worked in the wide shots for us. He was actually walking there with the kids, and then we, you know, we did force perspective sets for Robbie and created an image of Robbie being much bigger than he was. But I always thought Hagrid should be about two feet taller. <laughs> about 100 pounds I love that. Quidditch, uh, pain in the ass or the best thing you ever shot? Uh, no, that's one of the areas, you know, Quidditch is, for me, Quidditch was always the um, a really important element to everyone who, you know, everyone who, whether they were family or friends, when I got the job, were always like, what's Quidditch going to look like? So we had to design Quidditch as if it were a real game, you know, and it wasn't really a pain. None of it was a pain in the ass because it was such a labor of love. Mm. I have to be honest with you. You know, it was it was an intense, intense um, 160 days. But again, that's why I ended up not doing the third film, because I shot two 160 day schedules back to back. I could barely put two sentences together once I finished Chamber of Secrets. I just didn't have the energy to direct a third film. And by the time we had finished producing the third film, my kids wanted to come back to America and go to school here, and um, so we we left. Um, but Quidditch to me was a dream, and I'd still again like to go back and and tweak some of those CGI shots in Quidditch. Yeah, Chris, what did you think about where the series where it went after you left it? I thought I thought everyone did a brilliant job. Um, I, I've actually, you know, it's, it's rare to say that you loved every movie, but I thought, um, and I got to work with Alfonso, so to see what Alfonso did with 
Prisoner of Azkaban was just brilliant and beautiful, and he took it to a, 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 a wonderful po- poetic place. And then I loved what Mike Newell did, and then David Yates sort of picked up the ball and really created, I think his David's films get stronger and stronger, particularly... I was I was an emotional mess at the end of the last film. Mm-hmm. I just was uh, I just thought it was beautifully constructed and incredibly well done. Thinking back to Sorcerer's Stone, um, what do you think is the most iconic scene? Molly and I were we were going back and forth debating which like I mean all of the lines sound so iconic, but we couldn't really pinpoint which one was the sort of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone scene. Do you have an answer for that? No, I really don't, because we treated it like, you know, we went into that situation saying we have to make, the you know, we knew the importance of what we were doing. We knew that we had the eyes of the world upon us. So, as I said earlier, if we failed, we failed on a giant scale, and I never would have worked again. And I knew that every scene had to be important. So I can't really look at one iconic scene. The movie itself had to feel iconic. At least that was... Certainly the directive I gave to my cast and my crew is that this is, you know, I, I, I didn't want them to be as tense or as concerned, as anxious as I was every day, worry, worrying about the success or failure of this. <laughs> but I wanted everyone to know that we were doing something very special and very important. So it's difficult. To, it's, it's just difficult to find an iconic scene when you, you know, you knew, okay, you did Quidditch. Okay, we completed Quidditch. And then we were going to go into the chess battle, which was, again, for the most part, a gigantic stay, uh, set that Stuart Craig built. It was just visually kind of stunning. Um, yeah, there were challenges with every single scene, and we knew each one had to be special. Mm. And speaking of iconic, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about John Williams's score. What was it like for you the first time you heard that really magical theme? I had worked with John a couple of times, so he was... Um, you know, he's always done that for me. He did it on Home Alone, and uh, he's cre- created this incredibly iconic theme. And I remember um, John sent me a cassette tape of just that that oh, those opening that opening theme. And when I heard that for the first time, honestly, you got chills. You didn't know. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I thought, oh, this is going to be as iconic as Raiders or Star Wars or Jaws, but at the same time, I knew he was creating something very, very special. And then I went to visit him in Boston, and he played he played the theme on the piano for me, and it was just, it was so, it was such an emotional moment for me, and that theme is still being used for the theme parks, you know. Yeah. Well, so yeah, to kind of just bring us up to speed to 2016, you know, you have said uh, you wanted to make a film about the 19 years between Deathly Hallows and the epilogue, and then Cursed Child came out, which picks up 19 years later. Tell us sort of what's your headspace, what are your thoughts on the post-Deathly Hallows status quo of the series? You know, what like all the things that have been revealed. Well, look, I read, I haven't seen Cursed Child, but I read it and I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and I, I, again, it was an emotional, all of these things are emotional experiences for me because I invested so much of my life into the series. Um, I still, even with everything that's been revealed, and I don't want to give away any spoilers about Cursed Child because it is something that I think everyone who's a Potter fan should see or read at the very least. But I got to say, I still want to know what happened between the time 
the, between those 19 years. What, what, uh, there's there's got to be countless adventures with Harry and Hermione and Ron within those years that we don't know about. Um, maybe it's something Joe knows. Maybe it's something that she'll go back to someday. I don't know. I, I, I'm certainly not presumptuous enough to think that I can come up with those stories. Mm. But I think they're they're fascinating stories in in those 19 years. It's got to be, and I'd love to I'd love to someday get you know get involved with those if they're if she's ever going to you know do release any sort of stories that happened over those 19 years. Sure, Chris. Before we leave you, is there any sort of last bit of trivia that we would know never know? Something that people just didn't pick up on in all these years that Potter's been around. Well, you guys told me. I had no idea. I think that was worth it. I was in the editing room 700,000 hours. Um, <laughs> trivia is, yeah, no, I think the, um, the only thing that was really, I mean, in terms of behind the scenes, some of the things we tried to keep going is every day, um, I had Warner Brothers send me um, a, a backstop and a bunch of baseball equipment. So we created, we built a baseball field outside of Leesden, and the cast and crew would play baseball every day if it were nice. And if not, we built a basketball court with uh, inside of Leesden as well with the Hogwarts, um, a huge Hogwarts painting in the middle of the basketball court. <laughs> so uh, that's what cast, that's what we did as a cast and crew to blow off some steam. And the 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 Brits, the, the particularly the tougher guys on the crew. They were actually playing hardball. We were playing hardball. We weren't playing softball. And they they refused to wear baseball gloves. They wanted to catch fly balls and grounders and everything with their bare hands. And I'd never seen anything like that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> some of the tougher Brits and some of the uh, – I don't know if we ever got anyone out there. I just remember Richard Harris dressed as Dumbledore cheering me on when I was playing basketball. Oh, my and God. That was that may be one of the – more fun moments I've had in my life. God, what a dream. We're certainly thankful that you uh, look back with us today. You are such a legend. Uh, so I, These movies are so iconic and so important for us. So definitely thank you for them, first and foremost. And thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. We're, we're so appreciative. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's, it's fun reliving these memories. But thank th you. thanks so much, Chris. You're uh, such a class act and such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Take care. So that's it for Sorcerer's Stone. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, we would love to hear what you thought. If you agreed with some of our crazy Hagrid theories or disagree with our stance on Hufflepuff or just want to chat more in general about the wizarding world, send us an email at binge at ew.com. You can also tweet me at cmollysmith. And I'm at Mark Snedeker. And don't forget to subscribe. If you liked what you heard, spread the word and tell your friends, your family, even some muggles about us. You can also tell mudbloods. Don't tell squibs. I don't want them knowing about this. Uh, and we would love to hear your feedback, so please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. Until then, check back with us next week when we'll be talking all things Chamber of Secrets. And we have a very special guest who all I will say is that he has a lot of flash. See ya, everybody.